I'm reminded of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia because a lot of times people say, "Well, God is love," and they emphasize the love and they and they go way overboard on the love part. I'm reminded of a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where the Beaver family is talking to Peter, Susan, and Lucy. Edmund, by this time, has gone to the stone table. And they're talking to Peter, Susan, and Lucy, and they're talking about Aslan, the great lion. And they say, well, if he's a lion, is he safe? And the Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And that's what I can say to you firmly about our God. Of course he isn't saved. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But thanks be to God, his wrath has been satisfied on the cross. In Christ alone, who took on wrath. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Well, uh, last time we were together, I spoke on hope for the believer from 1 Peter chapter 1. And so today I want to speak from 1 Peter chapter 2 on growth for the believer. Uh, as we become believers, and we are very much compared to um, the different growth patterns of physical uh, growth. We are compared to babies, and then later in his epistles, Paul will compare us to grown men who have no need of milk, but should pass on to meat. And it's very important for us to make that progression um, and to start out as spiritual infants, as we all do, but then to progress to spiritual maturity. And these epistles were both written, uh, according to my studies, uh, toward the end of Peter's sojourn here on earth, and so... As we, as we dig in to this study, we can think of it in, in terms of if you had last words that you wanted to share with your family or friends, what would you share? And that's kind of what Peter is doing as an apostle of Jesus. Um, Paul said to Timothy, commit these things, the things that you know about the gospel, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so it is the prayer of every earnest preacher of the gospel, not that you would learn to follow and revere them, but that through their example you would learn to follow and revere Christ. Remember Paul said, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. So the key there was not imitating Paul, but rather to imitate Christ. And I think it's important for us to realize that as we go through this life, it is not a question of whether we are an example, because we are. No, 
no matter who we are, there are people that are looking to us as an example. The question is not, am I an example? The question is, what am I an example of? And as a believer, we should be an example of what it means to live in accordance with the principles of Jesus Christ, but not just to live uh, trying to obey His commandments in our own flesh, because we can't. Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. So, what does it mean to be an example? It means to be an example of surrendering surrendering ourselves to the Lord Jesus and seeing what He can do through us, because He said, for it is me, Paul said, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so as we open up this message on growth for the believer, the first point of growth that I want to point out is the growth of our desire for Christ. The growth of our desire for Christ. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you will want to grow closer to him. If you don't have a desire to grow closer to Him, you need to be diligent to make your calling and election sure, and you need to do business with God. Because a real relationship with Jesus is one that desires growth. And so we see this in the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, your response should be to lay aside malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. You lay aside these things And then what does that do? It gives you room to then desire the sincere milk of the Word so you can grow. You'll notice in the Scriptures, there are a few times where Paul or Peter or another writer will say, put this aside, leave it behind. And then he says, add this to your life. Because we can't leave a void in our life. Jesus talks about the man who was possessed of a demon and, and he gets it, he gets the demon cast out. And then his room is, is clean, but he doesn't fill it with anything else. And what happens? That demon wanders to and fro and finds seven of his friends. And they come back, and they possess the man again, and it says that his condition is worse than it was at the first. Because when we take evil habits out of our life, we have to add in good habits to fill the void. We cannot leave voids in our Christian life. And um, then in verse 3 it says, If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, in the Psalms it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And one of the ways that we can encourage people to taste and see if, that the Lord is good is that we would be good examples. Because Paul said, for you are our epistles known and read of all men. You may be the only 
or at least the first exposure to Jesus that someone else gets. Now that's a pretty heady thing when you think about it. But the reality is that we are ambassadors for Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're a dairy farmer or if you're working on Wall Street. That is your responsibility. It's not about the job that you do day to day that makes you an ambassador to Christ. You don't have to go to Zambia or Mozambique to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. There are so many hurting people here in the United States, especially as we have the culture increasingly, um, and even sometimes in the name of Jesus, embrace moral relativism. God is not morally relative. God says, this is right and this is wrong. And we as the church need to say, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me. It's a simple declaration, but it takes a lot of courage to live it out. So I want to encourage you in that. Okay, I have some cross-references today, and one of the things I like to do, because it's easier for me than turning every which way in my Bible, is to encourage the gentlemen in the audience to look up these cross-references and the first person to get there, if they could stand and read them for me. And this not only serves the purpose of making it easier for me to navigate my Bible, but it also hopefully helps keep you awake. So our first cross-reference is Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 15. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 15. Again, if one of you gentlemen gets there, if you could stand and read it loudly for all of us, I would appreciate that. And he himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So this again is talking about spiritual growth. It's saying that we need to fulfill the, the, the gift that God has given us. We need to exercise that gift and it's for the edifying of the body so that we can grow. If we don't do these things, we will be tossed aside by every doctrine that comes along. There's an increasing number of people who claim the name of Jesus, who talk about issues such as the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of Christian marriage as negotiable things. But Jesus said... Look at what the scriptures say. God made them male and female. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So you think that Jesus said anything about marriage? He absolutely did. I want to encourage you to be in the word because you know what? When counterfeiters, or rather when people that are working against counterfeiters are training, to spot counterfeit money, they don't spend a lot of time with the counterfeit. 
No, they spend time examining the actual article, the genuine article, so that when a counterfeit pops up, they can say, this is counterfeit, we need to get rid of it. And that is exactly the way we should be as believers in Jesus. We should be able to say, because we've studied to show ourselves approved, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, that we are going to share the truth unapologetically. Another thing that this passage we just read says is we need to share the truth in love. And a lot of times people overemphasize the love part, and they're just like, I'm just going to accept you the way you are because I love you. But the scriptures say that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you see your friend's house on fire, and you say, well, I really don't want to disturb what they're doing, uh, so I'm just going to let their house burn because I love them, and I don't want to tell them that their house is on fire, what's going to happen to their house? Their house is going to be gone, and they're probably going to be gone with it. There's a lot of people walking around us today whose houses are on fire who think they're okay because they think that they're following God. But God says that the gate to him is narrow. And we need to be careful to always speak the truth. And if you speak the truth, even if it's in love, some people will hate you for it. But don't worry, they hated Jesus first. You know, people say, well, Jesus went to the cross for love. Well, yes, he did. But he didn't go to the cross because he spoke warm fuzzies all the time. <clears throat> no, he went to the cross because he called King Herod a fox. And because he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people that were supposed to prize the word of God, people that were supposed to love the word of God, people that professed to know him, he called them hypocrites and he said, your hearts are far from me. So you can have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. At Hampton Court Palace in England, one of the most famous grapevines in the world is trained over a high arched trellis under a glass roof. It has been growing there for 160 years, and last year it ripened 600 fine clusters of delicious grapes. It has the best of expert care and shows no signs of dying. And I actually looked this up on the internet uh, to see if I found to find more information. And actually, as of, I believe, uh, last year, or within the last couple of years, it's actually 250 years old. It was planted in 1768. And the reason that it's thriving is because it's been cared for. If we want to grow in our spiritual life, and we want to facilitate growth in others, particularly our children, we need to take care to model what it means to grow in Christ and to encourage them to do the same. The second point of growth that I want to talk about, if you're taking notes, 
is the growth of the understanding of our position in Christ. For this we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also are as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I really like that phrase, you are a peculiar people. Because I guarantee you that when you start living a life that is dedicated for Christ and doesn't care what the world thinks, people will think that you are peculiar. Um... I remember one story from early on in my sister's marriage. She was um, living in Hawaii with my brother-in-law, because he's in the Navy. And uh, she went to some kind of appointment, and she was wearing a dress, and somebody made the comment, I didn't know people wore dresses in Michigan. You know, just this whole, because uh, they knew she was from Michigan, but just this whole idea that it was so strange to see someone wearing a dress that she stuck out enough for the person to make that comment. And it seems rather innocuous, but it just made me think about um, the way that people perceive us when we, when we live a little differently than what they may be aware of. And I, I think of it this as Peter is outlining the gifts that God has given us. He he came as a living stone, and he was disallowed of men, remembering he was crucified by men who hated him. But then he made us lively stones, and he built us up a spiritual house, and he gave us a holy priesthood. And then, you know, he says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And he says, you were not a people, but you now are a people. Uh, Ephesians says we were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive in the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful thing to know that our position in Christ is that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's a high calling. Can we look by way of cross-reference at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. Deuteronomy 7. Six to eight. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured, treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than of any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is a good reminder for all of us. We're not sitting here today as redeemed followers of Jesus Christ because we are some great people. Rather, the opposite. We're sitting here because sometime in our past, when we were wallowing in our sin, when we couldn't stand up, when we were stuck in the mire, Jesus reached down into our lives and said, I want you for a treasured possession. Paul said it this way, I strive to lay hold of him who laid hold of me. <clears throat> That's why for my speaking for him ministry, my motto is speaking for him who spoke for me. Because he laid hold of me as a five-year-old boy and said, I have a purpose for you. I want to redeem you and I want to use you. Now, for the first nine years after my conversion, I argued with God. I said, God, well, if, if I was able-bodied, then I could serve you with all of myself. And I fought and I argued. And then my little baby brother passed away when I was 13 years old. He was three months of age. He was, from all appearances, healthy. My mom fed him in the morning of July 16, 1992. And three hours later, she went to check on him. And he had gone home to be with the Lord. And I hit rock bottom because I was already struggling with my identity. I was already mad at God for the way he made me. And I said, God, I said, why did you take my brother and leave me here? Because I am completely useless. I just want to die. I would go into the front yard and I would watch cars passing the house and I would say, how easy would it be to just drive my wheelchair in the middle of the street and end it all and go to, be, go to heaven to be with Jesus and John Michael. But I'm thankful that God stayed my hand and held on to me for the next year as I continued to fight him. You know, if I tried to run away from home, my battery would die. So that wasn't an option. My parents stuck me in the car faithfully every week, took me to church. And even though I didn't want to be there, I know the truth still was able to work on my heart. And the year following, I went to a seminar and one of the sessions was the Ten Unchangeables of Life. One of those was the way God made you physically, and God broke through and he said, Andrew, I've been with you all the time. And I don't need to change you from the outside to use you. I just need you to change on the inside. I need you to get off the throne of your life 
and let me take over. And then I can do amazing things through you. And he surely, surely has. I was much like Moses. Moses was standing at the burning bush and God said, Moses, I want you to go and lead my people out of bondage. Their, their cries have come up to me. I want you to lead them out of bondage. And Moses says, but Lord, I, I can't speak. Send someone else, send anyone else. And God said, go and I will tell you what to say. And that's really what he did for me. And I've been able to serve him in a myriad of ways since then. I just recently passed the 500 episode mark on my weekly podcast which focuses on Christian growth. And so if you would like some weekly encouragement, you can go to my website, Speaking for Him, speaking the number for him.com every Wednesday and listen to a new episode of that podcast. And I would pray that that would be a blessing to you. But none of that would have been available if I had continued to be stubborn and continued to say, God, if you do this, then I will. And God says, trust me now. And things will become clear later. And sometimes they don't become clear on this earth. I don't think Job ever found out why God took everything away from him. All he could do was trust him. Let's look at John 15, verses 15 and 16. John 15, 15 and 16. Understanding of our 
responsibilities in Christ. And we continue in our passage. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 17. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be your they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to a king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so it is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we see some very clear directives here that Peter is laying out that should typify uh, the Christian life. He says that we should abstain from fleshly lusts. He says that our conversation should show that we are believers. We should be honest among the Gentiles. And so that if we are, don't speak evil, if nothing evil can be spoken against us, that is a testimony. Remember Daniel, they tried to trip him up, they tried to come up with ways to punish him, they, re, they were jealous of his success, but they couldn't find anything against him. And so they had to make up a law that he would automatically be in violation of in order to get him. And of course, they were ultimately not successful because God shut the lion's mouth. And how do we know for sure that God shut the lion's mouth? Maybe they had a big dinner before Daniel got in there with them. No, that's not what happened because we read the next morning after Daniel was pulled out of the lion's den that they cast the families of the people that accused Daniel into the lion's den and it says they never even hit the ground because those lions ate them before they could. So those were hungry lions but God kept Daniel and he's talking about how to live life within the culture in which you find yourself. Sometimes people say, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. But I believe that in order to be earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. Your ability to be a witness here on earth is because you have heaven in mind. And so it should permeate every relationship that you have here. So we we see about um, abstaining from lusts. We see about having honest conversation. Then we see about submitting yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, I firmly believe this. However, Peter himself shows an example of when that is not the thing you should do. Because Peter and John were what? They were put they were put in prison and then they were brought before the Sanhedrin and they said, what did they say? Never speak 
in the name of Jesus again. And he said, whether it is right to obey uh, man rather than God judge you, but we cannot stop speaking of the things which we have seen or heard. And so Peter said, I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. Because there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's common in this culture to say, God bless you. It's common in this culture even to say that I thank God for what he's given me. But as soon as you talk about the name of Jesus, people get nervous. Why? Because the name of Jesus is where the power is at. When Peter was walking on the water, he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and saved him. That's the power of the name of Jesus. And then he says, use your liberty, not as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Sometimes we think that our liberty entitles us to do whatever we want to do, not realizing how it may affect people around us. And then he sums up the section, honor all men, love the brotherhood, honor, fear God, honor the king. So all facets of life here on earth. If we can look at Titus 2, 7 and 8, Titus 2, 7 and 8, by way of cross-reference. This is continuing on the theme of our responsibilities in Christ. So if someone gets there, if you could read it. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in the doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Again, we see this phrase, your, your enemies will be put to shame because they will have nothing to say about you. Galatians 5.13, Galatians 5, verse 13. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. I was really privileged to see my grandmother spend her last few years at Rust Haven Homes and that is their motto, by love serve one another and it was so great to be able to have her live with people that I already knew and loved and appreciated and to have her being in a place where my brother and my sister both worked so they could see her even during the COVID shutdowns because they had to be at work anyway so that was a blessing of God. And she went to be with Jesus on April 10th. So she's now in her right mind for the first time in a decade. And I'm so thankful for that. She's with my grandpa. She's with my brother John. And I can't wait to see them. When... When Queen Victoria was a child, she didn't know she was in line for the throne of England. Her instructors, trying to prepare her for the future, were frustrated because they couldn't motivate her. She just didn't take her studies seriously. 
Finally, her teachers decided to tell her that one day she would become the Queen of England. Upon hearing this, Victoria quietly said, Then I will be good. The realization that she inherited this high calling gave her a sense of responsibility that profoundly affected her conduct from then on. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. That is our future. May that affect our conduct from here on out. <clears throat> the final section of our passage today is the growth of understanding our need to be an example. And we see this in First Peter 2, 18-25. 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for kindness toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults you shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also has suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he is reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who his own self bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead unto sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So Peter is going on and he's talking about, first of all, servants. In the modern application, we could say employers. We are to be subject to them. Um, not only to the good, this is where it gets hard, but also to the forward, also to the people that are irritating to us, perhaps especially to them. Because as it's said, it's easier to be nice to people that are nice to us. But we were all enemies of Jesus, and yet he extends his kindness to us. So as his children, as his Christians, as his Christ-like ones, we should do the same. And isn't it wonderful that Jesus gives us the example? He doesn't tell us to do anything that he is not willing to do or has, has not already accomplished himself. There have been different movements that have resurfaced every once in a while with the phrase, what would Jesus do? Charles M. Sheldon wrote a book called In His Steps, where a church community makes the commitment that they're going to ask every day about every action, what would Jesus do? And the transformation that takes place from that. Then in the 90s, the what would Jesus do bracelets became a fad. And I think they've been kind of off, off and on throughout the years since then. 
And just like with Christianity, quote-unquote, you can either wear the bracelet and have it mean nothing to you, or wear it as a reminder, or not wear the bracelet and still ask yourself every day, what would Jesus do? Because he is truly our example. And when we think, because some modern Christians have this idea that God does not want Christians to suffer. But in my mind, if the perfect Son of God suffered for our sins, what makes us as imperfect humans think somehow that we are uh, exempt from suffering. Suffering is a part of the human condition because of sin. And I want to encourage you here and now that if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that there's only two choices. Either he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy rest, or he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. If you want to be known of Christ, then you need to accept him. You need to call upon his name. And you will be saved. The Philippian jailer simply asked Paul and Silas, How must I be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Simple to do, yet it can be hard to come to that decision. So might I encourage you to do that. Because it will make all the difference in the world. I'm reminded of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Because a lot of times people say, well, God is love. And they emphasize the love. And they, and they go way overboard on the love part. I'm reminded of a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where the Beaver family is talking to Peter, Susan, and Lucy, Edmund by this time has gone to the stone table and they're talking to Peter, Susan, and Lucy and they're talking about Aslan, the great lion. And they say, well, if he's a lion, is he safe? And the Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And that's what I can say to you firmly about our God. Of course he isn't saved. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But thanks be to God, his wrath has been satisfied on the cross. In Christ alone, who took on wrath, isn't that a wonderful truth? Could we look at by way of cross reference Ephesians five two Ephesians five two we walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So, we're supposed to live lives of sacrifice for one another. In another place, Paul says, let each esteem other better than themselves. 
Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for your sin and mine. If someone could read 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is one that I would encourage you all to memorize. Because it will be good to be able to bring it to your mind. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God for our sin, it's the best deal you're ever going to get. Everywhere we go, we see sales. Buy one, get one free. Buy ten, get one free. You get 80% off every other week for a while at our van. Whatever you want to think of. But none of those deals are as great as the one that Jesus brokered for us. At the cross of Christ. And God's exclamation point of what happened at that cross was that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And it's a little bit humorous on the road to Emmaus, Jesus comes up to these disciples and he says, Why are you sad? And they say, Don't you know what's happened the last three days? as if he wouldn't. My friends, we don't really know what happened over that three days. Only he knows the full extent of what happened those three days. Why? Because he didn't want us to have to taste it. Because he wanted us to be free. Jesus said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, You'll be free indeed. No government leader can make you free. No church leader can make you free. Your parents can't make you free. But Jesus can make you free. And that is so important for us to know. On this issue of example, a man's life is always more forceful than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, disagree the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the reality is we do need teaching. We do need doctrine. We do need to show the truths of the scriptures by the preaching of the word. But remember, Paul said to Timothy, be an example to the believers in word and deed and purity. Paul said, you are our example. He knew the importance of example. He talked about it. So too must we know the importance of example. I trust and pray that you have good examples in your life. 
if you don't know that Jesus is still waiting. He's there to make a difference in your life. And if you've been hurt by the church, it's because the church is made up of sinful men. But Jesus is still trustworthy. Let's pray.